Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Cults, Killers, and Cocktails. You're here with Jen. And Vanessa, thank you so much for tuning in. Yeah, and Vanessa, is there anything new going on in your life since we talked last week? Yes, so I just adopted a retired racing greyhound. We named her Yoshi, and she is adorable. She um, used to race in Florida. She won a hundred and, or she didn't win. She raced a hundred and eight times. She won five races and she came in second 20. So I'm loving this dog mom life, but it's a lot to handle. It's, I kind of feel like it's having a newborn, you know? Right. Does she keep you up all night or? So the first couple of nights we put her in her kennel because that's supposedly their quote unquote safe space and greyhounds rue. They don't bark. So about five in the morning, every morning we were hearing woo woo and she was just a lot and um, we had to take her outside at that time, but now she's sleeping in the bedroom and she's been really good. So that's awesome. I didn't even know rooing was a thing to be completely honest. Yeah, they roo. They don't bark. I've never heard her bark. She just goes roo roo roo. I'm like, okay. That is cute. Yeah. And I haven't been able to meet her yet because Vanessa is currently remote. Yes. I got the second COVID vaccine on Thursday night and I was feeling fine, you know, until about 2 PM yesterday. And I took a avalanche downhill. Um, I got a fever. I got chills, everything like that, but I'm feeling a little bit better this morning. Still not a hundred percent. But, you know, it's not as worse as actually getting the COVID. So I'm not worried about it. And I'm still glad I did it. And I would do it again. So yeah, good. I'm excited to see how it works when everyone starts getting vaccines and everything. So that will be awesome. Me too. Um, Anything happen in your life the past week? I just went on vacation. So that was amazing. And it was beautiful and awesome. And I was able to read a bunch of really good books and relax and it was very 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 much needed break because work has been so crazy where'd you go turks and caicos so jealous i know it was literally beautiful everyone always says the water's so blue but when we were flying in you could literally see the animals in the ocean while you're flying in because the water is so clear and blue like people are not lying oh my god amazing we're definitely gonna have to go yes that podcast research field trip of course (laughs) (laughs) it'll be good for the mind. Did you see any whales or dolphins or anything? No, just like fish. We went snorkeling a couple of days and saw schools of fish. Everyone else went out and they saw sea turtles. But of course, when we went out, we didn't see anything. So of course, that's usually how it works. Right. But I was like, "Ah, I'm still on a beach and it was great weather, 80 degrees and it snowed here. So I'm Uh, thankful. It was awful here. It snowed so much and ice. That's the weird thing about Indiana. Like it's always a is it going to be super hot winter or is it not? You can't even predict anything. No. And apparently we're supposed to get snow like today and tomorrow too. So that's good. Oh yeah. My dad woke me up this morning and called me and was like, just so you know, they always do this whenever they see the weather, even if it's something that's not even going to be that bad. And I'm almost 30, but no big deal. <laughs> you know, like it's going to be really bad. So make sure you're not any, any out anywhere past 4 PM. Like, okay, dad, thanks. I will. I'll make sure. So. Okay. Papa Burgess. Right. <laughs> Thank you, dad. So I was thinking this week about our stories and I want to try something a little bit different okay. for the cult that I'm going to do. I am not going to tell you their full name or the name that they're really known by. 
And I want to see like when you're able to figure out who it is. Oh God. Okay. I'm being tested. <laughs> you do know I have a fever, right? <laughs> right. You have an excuse now. It's fine. Okay. Oh, well, I'm going to start out with mine and this is going to be a two-parter just because there's so much information on it. Um, I read a bunch of books about the subject while I was actually on vacation. Everyone on the beach probably thought I was a freak, but that's fine. <laughs> no it was deal. amazing. So let's go ahead and get into it. So my story this week is about James. James was born on May 31st, 1931 in Crete, Indiana. I'm from Indiana. You're obviously from Indiana. I had never heard of this place ever. And just to give you a little bit of background on the town, it's about 55 miles east of Indianapolis, where both you and I live. There's 1,350 people for the population. And the town is pretty much based on death. And that was back then and now. So when I say it's based on death, the reason I say that is because there's only 13 businesses in this entire town. Out of those 13 businesses, five are coffin makers. (gasps) There's one restaurant, one town hall, one stoplight, and five churches. Oh my God. Yeah. So pretty much any typical Indiana movie that you always watch. This is kind of like one of those like old towns. So James was born, like I said, in 1931, and he was born in a house that was just a little bit bigger than a shack. So he was an only child. His father was actually named James as well. And his father had him when he was 47 years old. Oh, he's a little bit older. I know. I I mean, it's different now. I feel like everyone has kids in their thirties, but for that time period, 47 is very old to have a kid I feel like yeah I mean Larry I guess Larry King had one when he was like 75 or something yeah. also, rest rest <laughs> in R. peace R. Larry R. King R. yeah R.I.P. <laughs> but still so James's father also grew up in a poor family he was one out of 12 kids he fought in World War One, but then he got changed to invalid status or no longer being able to fight on duty because he suffered emphysema-like attacks. James's father was married to James's mom, and she was 17 years younger than the dad. And she was also known by her friends as a very domineering woman. Uh, For example, she insulted her husband for being unable to make a living for the family. The mom- rude. I know. So this, this is, yeah, it comes into play later. But the mom worked in factories, and she also worked as a waitress. And daily, she would nag her son- that he needed to make something of himself. He couldn't be like them. He needed to do something to set himself apart. Our James is Irish and Welsh for his descent. So he's pretty much the whitest kid ever. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Right, yeah. Later in life, it was said that he was beaten by his father and that his father had affiliations with the Klan. And one of the reasons in his... One of the reasons James said that he was beaten by his father is because one day after school, he brought an African-American friend home to play with him, and then his dad beat him. Oh, I hate his dad so much. So he said he grew up with a father that was pretty racist. Mm -hmm. His childhood friends would describe him as a really weird kid that was obsessed with religion and death. In James's defense, though, with the town that he grew up in, it seemed like that was all that he was around. James, as a kid, frequently held funerals for small animals that died around his property and one of his friends said that once he stabbed a cat to death (sighs) hey him yeah other people saw him as quiet very serious about getting good grades and wanting to make his mom proud which makes sense considering his mom was 
not holding back that she wanted him to do better. People thought that he developed an interest in religion because he couldn't make friends. So he would just be researching religion. And a lot of the time in his free time, he read about the works of Joseph Stalin. And I'm going to totally butcher all the rest of these names besides Adolf Hitler, um, Gandhi, and Mao Zan, which most of these people are, you know, obviously dictators or affiliated with communism, um, socialism. So that's what was influencing him as a kid. Okay. So now we move forward to June 12th, 1949. James marries Marcy Boswell. He gets enrolled at Indiana University. What, what? Hoosiers. Right? That's in 1950. (laughs) And he plans to become a doctor. He spends two years at Indiana University, and then he goes to Butler. Go Bulldogs. Yep. Um, he ended up graduating 10 years later with a secondary degree in education. His roommate back at, at college, Keith Lemons, always described him as being troubled and always running decisions by his wife. So he felt like that he was being mothered by his wife, essentially. Okay. He moved to Indy in 1951 and he joined a fundamentalist congregation and started preaching a little bit on occasion whenever they let him. In 1951, he also joined the Communist Party in Indianapolis. Great. Good. Yeah, Yeah. which every time I learn more and more about Indiana's history, I'm like, (laughs) just Mm -hmm. sometimes it's a little bit hard. It's like nails on a chalkboard. Yeah. He actually had his first experience preaching at the pulpit at 19 years old, which that's pretty young, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Also in 1951, his father passed away. And I'm not mad about that. But it didn't seem like he took it very hard either. In 1952, he became a student pastor at Somerset Southside Methodist Church, which is actually pretty close to us. And during sermons, he would talk majority about racism and helping the poor. And around that time, he decided that he wanted to be a faith healer. Oh, God, here we go. Yeah. In an interview with New York Times, a way later, his wife said, that he had not been lured to the industry by religious faith, but because because it served his goal of achieving social change through Marxism. So he wanted to be a minister, not because of his belief in God, but because he wanted to mobilize people through religion and influence them that way to do what he wanted politically and socially. Gotcha. For example, one time when he was preaching, he slammed a Bible down and he said, quote, I've got to destroy this paper idol, end quote. Oh, yeah. Anytime you refer to the Bible as an idol and you're preaching in pretty much a Christian church, I think there's kind of an issue. I feel like I would walk out like quietly. Right. I'd be like, I have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Never come back. So in 1953, he left Somerset Church and he started his own congregation because he stated that the elders and the members there would not help him integrate people so they wanted the congregation to be mostly caucasian at this time he starts witnessing all these faith healings um he goes around and has seen different ministers perform all of these miracles and in the late 1950s he started his own church that eventually became known as the people's temple and he was their pastor there when am i allowed to guess you can guess whenever you want. Okay. I think I know who you're talking about, but I don't know the name of it. Like, oh, it's the like really bad cult in Indiana, right? What do you mean by really bad cult in Indiana? Just keep going. Okay. I don't, I don't remember what the name is, but. Okay. So in 1964, 
he's officially ordained as a minister. Before then, he was not officially ordained. While he's doing all this soul searching, he is heavily influenced by this guy named Father Divine, uh, who is a pastor in Philadelphia. One of the pieces of advice that Father Divine gave him was to learn how to manipulate members in their congregation. Divine actually told Jones, I just said his name. All right, it's Jim Jones. (laughs) Okay, yeah. (laughs) I wrote it in my, I looked so hard through my notes. So, all right, Jim Jones. Okay, I've heard of him. That's the really bad cult I was talking about. (laughs) Yes, okay, so now I'm going to call him Jim because James just literally throws me off the entire time. Okay, okay. So, Divine told him that he needed to find an enemy and make sure the people knew who the enemy was. And then when they knew who that enemy was, it would unite all of them. And that way, Jones could have these people that were pretty much subservient to him. Which makes sense. If people have a common cause to believe in, you know, they're all going to band together. Right. That said that they had cancer. They had to vomit up the cancer to show that he had cured them. And a lot of the times he used intestines of animals. (gasps) They would have to literally put it in their mouth and vomit it up. So then he starts having his church members call him father, which in itself is just super creepy. Mm-hmm. And in the 1960s in Indianapolis, Mayor Boswell actually appointed him as the human rights director. Okay, well, we didn't have a strong mayor choice at that time, clearly. I mean, the thing is, Jones was really weird in regards to his ministry and his temple, but he did a lot of really great things for Indianapolis and for integration. So, for example, uh, he helped integrate churches, restaurants, the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department. Uh, theater and IU Health Hospital. Um, really? Methodist. Yeah, Methodist to be exact. He set up stain operations to catch people refusing service to African Americans. And in 1961, he was put in the hospital because of a concussion. And they accidentally moved him to the African American ward of the hospital. And then when he woke up, they're like, We're so sorry, we're going to move you to the Caucasian ward. And he was like, No, I want to be here. I will not be moved. And he helped make the beds in that ward, emptied the bedpans, and people saw his actions. And then they were like, he's actually onto something. They put pressure on officials to desegregate the wards. That's awesome. I had no yeah. idea. Yeah. So people in Indianapolis, they were very critical of his views. So they fought back by, for example, they placed a swastika on the people's temple. Um, they left dead cats at his house and would just do certain other things just to scare his family and protest. Okay, that's pretty terrifying, you know. Right. But so Jones is weird, but he also did a lot of really good things mm-hmm. for Indianapolis, which I think is kind of cool at the same time. But do the negatives outweigh the positives? I feel no. like we're going to find out. <laughs> I feel like we're going to find out shortly. But his wife was also very very involved in helping out the needy. His wife set up soup kitchens and would volunteer with the elderly. And in 1961, they had a son named Stephen. And then they ended up adopting six children, African-American children, Korean, and white. Um, They were six in total. In 1962, the family traveled to Brazil because they wanted to set up a new temple and get more members. And after reading an article in Esquire magazine, which that magazine has been around literally forever, about the nuclear holocaust, they went to Guyana just to check it out and see what it is all about because in the article they said it was one of the most safe places in the United States if a nuclear war happened. Oh. All right. Right, which I don't know what goes into that to determine that, but that's what Esquire thought. 
Then they returned to the United States in 1963. During this time in the early 60s, there were tons of rumors that he was having an affair and his wife was unhappy because he was sleeping with members of the congregation that were younger. Well, you know, that happens. (laughs) Yeah, Jim was known to pressure sex with younger members because he could dominate them more easily, which that makes sense considering what his mother was like when he was growing up. In the 1960s, he started to challenge all of his members that didn't agree with him. He established an interrogation committee with the People's Temple and things were starting to get not as happy as they usually were. So also in the 1960s, Indianapolis public officials started looking into why all of this real estate transfers were going from members of the church to Jones. And they weren't just going to Jones's personal account. They were going to a for-profit bank account that was controlled by him, his wife, and his mother. Okay. Yeah. So things are starting to get a little iffy. Uh Healings that he was performing were also starting to get investigated. People were having doubts that they were real. And in 1965, Jim announced to his church that the world is going to be engulfed by a nuclear war by, and he was very specific, July 15th, 1967. Oh, that's very specific. It reminded me of like when the world was going to end with the Aztec calendar. And that was like 2012, wasn't it? Yeah. (laughs) I was actually scared because everybody kept saying, oh, the world's going to end. Like that was not a fun New Year's Eve. Right. (laughs) After he makes this announcement, he moves all of his members over to Northern California, and there was about 70 families total, which that's pretty significant to move 70 families over to a different state, especially California. Yeah, that's not far from Indiana. Or I mean, I guess that is far from Indiana. (laughs) Right. I was going to say, I've never even been to California. (laughs) By the 1970s, his group had almost 20,000 members. Oh, wow. Yeah. And at this time in the 1970s, he's feeling very full of himself. So he's starting to reject the Bible and telling people that he's the reincarnation of Gandhi, Buddha, and Vladimir Lenin. Oh God, here we go. Here we go with these reincarnations again. One of the survivors, Hugh Fordson Jr., who was an ex-Temple member, was actually quoted saying, what you need to believe in is what you see. If you see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. As you see me as your father, I'll be your father. For those of you that don't have a father, if you see me as your savior, savior, I'll be your savior. If you see me as your God, I'll be your God. And he heard Jim say that multiple times. Hmm. So he was looking to really lead these people in pretty much any way that he could. Uh, while in California, he was in contact with multiple politicians, local and national. In December of 1973, he was arrested for trying to molest an undercover police officer oh yeah yeah so he's busy while he's out in california later it was dismissed just because of the legality of the arrest there was something that happened to not be able to take it to court so they just dropped the charges wow also in the 70s as he's growing all these members and becoming more and more political he's starting to have issues with the press there's bad reports coming out from ex-members that are coming out saying that he is being controlling that he is making people give property to him to go along with this the church wealth actually grew because members had to donate either 25 to 40 percent of their income (gasps) yeah and then they had to sell their home and other property so jones was known to have affairs with women in his congregation and we'll get into this next week when we talk about exactly what they believed and how this all went down 
but one of the things that he told his members was that all men were gay except for him what what (laughs) yeah even though men were like attracted to women all of them were gay so even if you were married you wouldn't be able to consummate the marriage (gasps) so a lot of times Jim would use this to go after younger girls in his congregation. So one of the members, Grace Stolen, was one of Jim's, you know, partners. Side girls. Side girl, yeah. partner, however you want to classify it. Gotcha. And she actually became pregnant. And she ended up leaving the People's Temple because of the conditions that were so horrible. But her husband, Timothy Stolen, actually stayed for a couple more years. And she left her son with him. <gasps> yeah when she left because she didn't know what to do she didn't know where to turn okay. so after she left timothy still was serving jim and was promoting the people's temple and then eventually he left as well but also left his son with them oh so he leaves and his son is with like he just leaves the yeah, son the and son the is cult. still with the people's temple yep son is still with the cult you know, parents of the year get these people a trophy. Right. So Jones claimed that he was the father. He was publicly very, he went to the public about it and said that he was the father of the son. And Timothy was on the birth certificate because at the time he was married to Grace. Jim claimed that the only reason that he was the father of the son was because Timothy asked him to have sex with Grace in order to keep her from leaving the church. Because he was gay, right? Yeah, right. The divorce proceedings were very, very ugly. And when Timothy ended up trying to get his son back, you know, because it's, it is his son. Yeah. Even if Jim was the father, it's still a son. It just got really ugly in the press. So with this, all of the bad reviews from people leaving the cult and investigations that are starting to happen, Jim decides that he needs to move everyone to the quote unquote promised land, which is in Guyana. Guyana, where's that at? It's in Africa. Oh. It's extremely hot. It's not anywhere that I would consider moving um, just out of the blue. But again, this is goes back to that Esquire article where he said it was one of the safest places in this nuclear holocaust that's going to happen. Gotcha. So in order to keep everyone safe and rebuild everything, he wants to go there. Also, it was a great place to move people because he would pretty much be on his own. So he would have nothing to worry about. So he slowly started to move members out there. And then in August, 1977, he moved a majority of his members out there just because of everything that was imploding. And he kind of wanted to leave the United States before things got worse. Gotcha. He would still keep in contact with the few members that he had back home through a radio that he would literally be on 24 seven a radio that reaches to the United States. Yep. So we'll get into this next week, but they only had one radio to communicate with people from the United States and in their different places in Guyana, because it was so remote. They were literally near nothing. Phones but I mean, reach out there. I feel like I can't even get cell phone signal. Like if I were to go out there. So the fact that a radio actually goes all the way to the United States, that's crazy. Oh, yeah. And the crazy thing was, too, he only spoke in code. That way, if people would loosen in, they have no idea what they were saying. Really? And they would, like, frequently change frequencies. So they would say something, like, go up three notches, but it would be in code. It was just ridiculous. This guy had a very, very, very tight operation. Um, People that threatened to leave this cult were usually beaten or they were put in a medically induced coma. So 
people were tending to not want to create any type of waves when they were living out there. Um, next week, we're actually going to get into the few core beliefs that they did have. And then we're going to talk about survivor stories and what it was like to live Jonestown. 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 Yes. Yes. So is that all for this week? That's all for this week. No, you're leaving me hanging. Next week will be the best one because again, we'll talk about Jonestown, what life was like out there. It was ridiculous. And we're going to talk about all the survivor stories. I didn't know Jonestown was in Africa. Yep. Okay. Dang it. I'm sad that it's a two-parter now because I'm like, oh, I want to hear the rest of it. (laughs) (laughs) Good story, Jen. Good story. So Jen, do you want to tell our listeners what cocktail we are drinking this week remotely? Well, since... It is a morning day. Uh, We couldn't do it last night because Vanessa was not feeling great. So today's cocktail for the week are going to be just mimosas. And I don't know about you, Vanessa, but I'm more of like a 25-75% person when I make my mimosas. Usually it's the 25% OJ, but what about you? Oh, for sure. For sure. Like whenever we go out to eat and I see like a bartender pour a little bit of champagne and then like a lot of orange juice, I get really sad on the inside. Right. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm actually mixing my mimosa with cranberry juice this morning. Oh, that's a good idea. Also like peach is a good thing to mix it with. Mm-hmm. So is pineapple juice too. Oh, I love pineapple mimosas. Those are the best. Mm-hmm. Don't be scared to mix up your juices on your mimosas, people. <laughs> Next week, we'll go back into legit cocktail making, but at least just for this week, just because of the situation we're in, we're just keeping it easy with mimosas. And Vanessa, what did you decide to do for this week? So this week for my story, I decided to do somebody named the Grim Sleeper. Have you heard of him? I have not. All right. Well, here we go. Lonnie Franklin Jr., nicknamed the Grim Sleeper. He was born August 30th, 1952, and he grew up in South Central Los Angeles. And there's really not too much known about his childhood besides um, the area that he lived in was poor. Uh, There was a lot of crime, drug-ridden area. He lived in the house that his parents grew up in. So once his parents like passed on, um, he actually moved into that house. And just to kind of give you an idea of the neighborhood, there were bars on all of the windows. Oh, wow. So like people couldn't break in. Right. We're kind of skipping his childhood because he ended up joining the military when he was older and he only got promoted to a private, which I don't think that's really a promotion. I think you start off as a private. Right. And he got discharged at 23 years old in 1975. The reason that he got discharged is that he was caught gang raping a 17-year-old German girl at knife point with two other men. Oh my gosh. So we are just, we're just starting off strong. Yeah. So the story behind that is that she was walking down the street and a car pulled up to her. One of the men in the car grabbed her and pulled her inside. And it was an all night event so bad that she didn't think that she was going to survive. Now, how infuriating cocky Lonnie was after it was all over, she convinced him to give her his number. And he did. Idiot. (laughs) Yeah, because that's exactly what I want to do after you get done raping me all night. I want to meet up for a date. Let's go for coffee in a couple of days. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So obviously, this is how he was caught. She told him that 
Um, she wanted to meet up at a train station three days later and he meets her and the cop shows up instead and arrest him. He served less than one year in German prison. That's really? It. That's it? One, less than one year. Yep. So he comes back to South Central LA after, you know, he's done with his prison, his kind of prison sentence. He comes back and he meets a woman and they get married and he's head over heels for her. He's super in love with her. And apparently the feeling may not have been mutual. She was a crackhead. She spent money and never paid bills. And she got smoking with a bunch of random guys in their house. And they just kept arguing, like, stop doing crack, all this stuff. And she said no. And they ended up divorcing. So he hated her and he hated crackheads because of her. And a friend of him actually blames her for his hatred of women. Really? Divorces suck, breakups suck, but you got to move on, right? Right. He meets a girl named Sylvia and they end up getting married. Already? Yeah, not not too long later. You know, it's fine. But Sylvia is a complete 180 from his first wife. She is known as a well-respected female of the area who had a decent office job and went to church on Sundays. Okay. They have two kids, a boy and a girl. The girl's name is unknown. She's completely out of the public eye. But the boy's name was Christopher. And it's thought that Lonnie was extra hard on him. And he was a very troubled kid. Even though he was meaner to his son, he was a quote unquote good neighbor. The kind that he would borrow a cup of sugar from. He was a mechanic, so he would help his neighbors with their car troubles. And he even worked as a mechanic for the police station briefly. And okay. he, in, he ended up quitting and he became a garbage truck driver. I mean, I've heard that those people can make pretty good money. Exactly. Like, I mean, if you're making better money, you got to support your family. Might as well. Right. So, I mean, for the most part, besides like being meaner to his son, they seem like a normal-ish family from the outside, but there were a few strange things going in on the inside. One thing was the community never saw him and Sylvia together. They also slept in separate bedrooms, which I know a lot of older married people do that. But I mean, for the most part, you're married, you sleep in the same bed. Right. So that was one strange thing. Another thing was his wife would not go into their garage. Whether she was allowed to or not is unclear. But this garage was full of porn. She probably, so, I wonder if she knew then, because I wouldn't want to go in there. Well, I would be like, take your damn porn down. <laughs> like, I would have lit it disgusting. on fire, but. <laughs> yeah. Burn the thing down. So all his friends would come over and see the porn. There were pictures all over the wall. And friends knew that he liked it rough slash torturing women. But that's it. They thought it stopped there. I feel like if you came up to me though and you were talking about something like that I might want to dive a little bit more just to make sure you're okay <laughs> are you okay but you need men, help? men also don't talk about their feelings so I get that too but okay all right I'm following they, them. they don't and I feel like some like men would be like oh cool you got a garage full of porn <laughs> right so. so one example is the nanny of his two children he would make her get naked and he'd bond her with rope he would then have anal sex with her and she had to end up quitting because he was too rough. 
And she never went to the police about this because he paid her in crack and she didn't want to get in trouble. Because remember I said it was like super like crack cocaine epidemic going on. Right. So that's one example. Another example is a friend and him were on the town one night and they passed a woman walking. Lonnie pulls over and gets out of the car. He grabs the woman by the hair and starts pulling her in. She starts screaming and his friend yells, yo, what are you doing? And when his friend yells this, um, he said that he came back to his senses and let her go. However, since it was like such a crime ridden area, there were police monitoring or I guess patrolling the block and they saw the whole thing. So they arrested him and his friend and they took him into jail and they were released a few hours later and no fingerprints or anything were taken. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. Because um, my guess is that the police saw it as a quote unquote, well, nothing really happened. Right. So, like a domestic disturbance or something. Mm-hmm. So um, just to give an example about how bad the epidemic of the crack cocaine was at this time, um, the crack cocaine industry employed more people than AT&T, IBM, and Xerox combined. Holy crap. Yeah. So again, Lonnie hated crackheads, but you know, he's going to decide to take advantage of this epidemic and start paying for things with crack. So Lonnie was known as the wealthiest man in the neighborhood with his trash collecting and his drug dealing. And he's the type of person that if you needed something, he'd get it. He had three phones, one personal, one business, and one for the hose. No way. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So by hose, he meant prostitutes. Naturally, this is who he targeted. Hashtag best husband ever. Because remember, he's still married during this whole time. I know. It's just, ugh. So on August 15th, 1985, the body of 29-year-old Deborah Jackson was found in an alley. She was a cocktail waitress, and she was shot three times in the chest with a .25 caliber. Not much longer later, the body of 34-year-old Henrietta White was found in an alley. She was a prostitute. She was shot twice in the chest with a .25 caliber. So that's two of them. Right. A little while later, the body of 27-year-old Barbara Ware was found in an alley, and she was also known for prostitution. She was shot once in the chest with a .25 caliber. What? Same, same way to kill them all. So there was actually a 911 call that came in for this one, and the caller had said, quote, I'd like to report a dead body or murder or something. The address is 1346 East 56th Street in the alley. The guy that dropped her off was in a white and blue Dodge van. The dispatcher says, okay, what's your name? The caller says, oh, I'm staying anonymous. I know too many people. Okay, now, bye-bye. So then more and more bodies of prostitutes were appearing. Bernetta Sparks, 26 years old, and Mary Lowe, 26 years old, were both found in alleys, both shot once in the chest with a .25 caliber. Patricia Jefferson was also later found in an alley at 22 years old. She was shot once in the chest, again, with a .25 caliber. Does he not own any other guns? Apparently, he just wants to stick to what he knows, you know? Like, he doesn't like change. 
But interestingly, though, when the body was discovered, she had a napkin laying across her face with the word AIDS on it. So I don't know if she, I mean, had full-blown AIDS and maybe they had sex and he was scared that he was going to get AIDS. I don't know. Yeah, that's a weird way to just leave it. Yeah. So finally, Alice Alexander, who was 18, was found dumped in an alley, finding two gunshot wounds on her chest. Would you like to guess what the weapon was? A .25 caliber. Mm-hmm. As they should be, the community is getting a little freaked out. Members formed a group called Black Coalition Fighting Serial Murders. And they said, basically, like, the police isn't doing shit about this. We're going to do something. They had said that the police said to them, well, he's only killing prostitutes. Like, it's not a big deal. They always used to do that, I feel like, with a lot of the serial killer murders that happened. Yeah, like, I mean, prostitutes are still people. You know? I agree. It's ridiculous. Yeah. The police even described these crimes as NHI, which stands for no humans involved, which so they're really saying that prostitutes aren't humans. That makes me so angry. So, so angry. I mean, I'm glad it's not like that as much now, but I'm sure it probably still happens. I'm sure there's areas. Yeah. Meanwhile, as all of this is going on, Anitra Washington is at her house getting ready to go to a party at her friend's house. She walks to the corner store to pick up some booze for the party or maybe even some snacks. On her way out, she noticed a nice looking Pinto parked outside of the store. So she's kind of like checking it out. It's a nice car. And the driver, Lonnie Franklin, noticed her looking at it. So they kind of talk for a second and he asked her if she wanted a ride to her friend's party. And at first she says no, and he starts giving her crap saying she's playing hard to get what's with uh, women these days, blah, blah, blah. And what I say to that is no means no. Right. I agree. But she caves and hops in the car. As soon as they turn the corner, he pulls a gun out on her. She starts screaming and asking about the gun, to which he replies, what'd you say? Bitch, I'll shoot you again. And she replies, you shot me? And she must have passed out after her shot. Like after she got shot, she passed out and then woke up. And, and then had realized no what idea. Was going on. Yeah. Wow. So he climbs on top of her and he rapes her. And she is passing in and out of consciousness this entire time. He dumps her in an alley and she survives. This wasn't reported to the community until 20 years later. How? Anitra gave police a description of the car. She gave them the street and she was even able to provide a sketch for the police. And the police said that she was unreliable because eyewitness sketches aren't reliable. So that's why it wasn't reported. We use them all the time in other cases, but in this one, not reliable. I'm just saying, like, what other witness is there besides an eyewitness for a sketch? No, I mean, I agree. I'm right there with you. Yeah, so whatever. So as I said before, the community was let down by police. One person asked, could you imagine if this was happening in Beverly Hills? Like, they would have taken care of all this, like, months ago. Right. So all of a sudden, the killings stop. Cold turkey for 14 years. 14? 14 years. 
the Grim Sleeper. So then in 2003, the body of 15 year old, a 15 year old girl named Princess who ran away from home to prostitute was found dead in an alley. Only this time, there was no .25 caliber involved. She was strangled. Then they found the body of 34-year-old Valerie McCorvey, again, strangled. Which, if you listen to a lot of, like, killer's crimes, when you strangle somebody, it's a lot more personal. Right. So they want to see the death go out of their eyes. They want to be in control of the victim's death. Finally, the body of Janisha Peters was found in an alley. And we're back to the .25 caliber because she was shot once in the back. When police tested for DNA evidence, they could not believe that the DNA matched the murders of seven bodies found dead in the 80s. Police finally decided to stop dragging their asses and get this guy. They had a conference where they finally released the sketch that I had mentioned earlier and put the suspect on America's Most Wanted with a $500,000 reward. So at least they're getting like stuff out there. And they also released that 911 call for the third victim that he had that I mentioned earlier. That wasn't released until just now, or I guess back though, in 2003. The sketch though, it's so old. Would it even be relevant? That's very true. Unless they had like, I don't know if they had like those age, um, aging sketches or that aging technology in 2003. Right. But Yeah, so they finally released the sketch, which it probably was outdated. And it's funny because um, I actually watched a documentary on this case. It was a great documentary. And the main journalist actually emailed the mayor of the city and wanted to discuss this case. And the admin for the mayor replies back, the mayor will only discuss how the crime rate has gone down in the city, but not the Grim Sleeper case. Shortly after he got another email and they declined any kind of interview at all. So that's saying to me, they know they screwed up. Right. They just don't want to admit it and put it out there for the press. Exactly. It's 2008 now and advancements in DNA technology are happening. A thing called familial DNA is introduced. Which yes. Is, I love this. I know. These are my favorite, which is where like, it's, I think it's like ancestry DNA, how you do that. Oh yeah. 23andMe, ancestry.com, all mm-hmm. of those. Finally, after all of these years running the Grim Sleeper's DNA, hoping eventually something would happen, they get a match. But not for the actual killer himself, but for his son, Chris Franklin. Remember how I said he was a troubled kid? Yeah. He ended up carrying that troubledness to adulthood, being in and out of jail, and he had his DNA taken at least one of the times. So police now know that it's most likely somebody related very closely to Chris, most likely like a dad or an uncle. And they're going after his dad, but they need solid evidence. So Lonnie goes to a pizza parlor for a birthday party. The busboy, otherwise known as Mr. Undercover Cop, (laughs) takes the cups and plates and he takes Lonnie's items to the lab. It's a match. Yes. I know, that's my absolute favorite. And they actually found a match for um, the saliva on all of the victim's breasts. Because interesting. Apparently, apparently he liked boobs. So Well, it's weird. It's interesting too that back then that they knew to take that. Right. Yeah. That's actually a very good point. Like you want to think about that. 
So after they confirm it's him, they raid his house and what they find in his house horrify them. There's over 1,000 pictures of women naked and tied up with hours of video. And, and this isn't like his porn collection. This is actually victims. Yes. Okay. Many of the pictures were missing girls who had never been found. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so after they see all these pictures, police believe that he never quote unquote slept. Do you remember what his job was? Garbage man. So they're thinking that what he did with the bodies is he took them to a landfill and buried them. (gasps) Yeah. Yeah. Not good. On July 7th, 2010, he was arrested for 10 counts of murder and one attempted murder. The girl that provided the sketch. So, of course, cocky asshole pleads not guilty. And um, the trial kept getting delayed. So they just stuck with the charges of the murders. Like they didn't want to go for any of the missing girls. I mean, I'm sure you can speak more to how cases get delayed and trials and everything. But I just know that it kept getting delayed. Oh, yeah. It happens all the time. Yeah. So they just didn't want to mess with any of the charges and just go for what they know. So it was a three-month trial. And the prosecution, um, their, you know, stuff was DNA evidence, the Polaroid pictures, and I forgot to mention, a .25 caliber was found in his house. I'm glad they found it. (laughs) Shocking, right? Right. So the defense, which is probably the stupidest defense I've ever heard, is one, they said that his Fourth Amendment was violated. How? which the fourth amendment is um, it prohibits unreasonable searches. So like the cup at the pizza parlor that the officer took, they said that they had no right to do that. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. The judge even said that was a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> so their second defense was other DNA was found on the dead and or the, Other DNA was found on the dead females. So, you know, it might not even be him, but no shit, Sherlock. They were all prostitutes. Of course, there's going to be other DNA on them. Well, that and if all the people who have passed away have his DNA and it's the common thread, it makes zero sense. Oh, that just makes me so angry. That's why it's just the stupidest defense I've ever read in my life. (laughs) Yeah. So surprisingly, it took the jury a, um, a day and a half to deliberate which I feel like this should have just been done in like an hour but yeah even when they do five hours people are like wow that's really quick but a day and a half I feel like is pretty standard anytime even if I was on a jury I would just be I don't know I feel like it would take me I'd be that one person that'd be like well maybe we need to talk about this <laughs> even be if the one totally person guilty, I want to go hates. home <laughs> <laughs> so um It took the jury a day and a half to deliberate and he was found guilty on all counts and he was sentenced to death in July of 2016. So that's how long this trial was like delayed to 2016. Yeah. And he was arrested in 2010. Mm -hmm. So um, the last victim's mother, which was Janika said in court, the defendant took my daughter. He murdered her. He put her in a plastic bag, like a trash bag, like she was trash. My hope is that he spends the rest of his glory days in his jail cell, which will become his trash bag. Yeah. Which, that's super sad. 
And if you're not already mad about the earlier police work on this case, Lonnie was in and out of jail in the 90s for theft. So when he was supposedly sleeping. So his DNA should have already been in CODIS. They just weren't checking it. It was just lazy police work and they never took his DNA. That is so sad. Can you imagine how many lives would have been saved? So many, especially the murders that were in the 2000s, you know? Right. So his neighbors were actually surprised by the arrest because, like I said, he was the neighbor that you borrow a cup of sugar from. And at first they thought the the arrest was for his theft because they knew he was a thief. So Lonnie showed no remorse in court and he was staring straight ahead the entire time. On March 28th, 2020, a little over three and a half years into his death sentence, Lonnie was found unresponsive. Lonnie was found unresponsive in his jail cell. There were no signs of trauma and he was declared dead. And there was an autopsy that was supposed to be performed, but no articles on the internet were updated. And I'm thinking that's because of COVID. Right. Because it was just like last year when COVID was coming out. And investigators think that he's responsible for 14 to 100 missing slash dead Jane Doe's based on the Polaroids in his house. Wow. Yep. So that is the story of the Grim Sleeper before his final slumber. That is crazy. I've never heard of that. And especially with him just passing away, you would think that they would have gotten a lot more media attention. Right. Like there were, like I said, there were tons of articles that say the Grim Sleeper's dead, the Grim Sleeper's dead. There's going to be an autopsy performed next week. And then literally nothing, nothing on the update of the autopsy or anything. So they kind of just like, I don't know, brushed it off. Well, with all the crazy things that have happened in the past year, I feel like the news has had more than enough stories that if they don't follow up on something, they're like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Who cares about a serial killer? Yeah. We have the killer bees and then the vaccine and, you know, everything (laughs) else that's happened and murder hornets. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that is crazy. Well, I am glad you did that one, though. I had yeah. no idea any of that happened. That's, wow, that's good. I'll have to watch those documentaries, too. I hope that mimosas are good for fevers, because I kind of need another mimosa after hearing both of our stories. Right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Yeah, well, next week, I'll do my part, two, and then you will do another killer? Another piece of shit. Yes, I All will. right. Hopefully we'll be in person and I can meet Yoshi, so. Yes, he or she cannot wait to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. We really appreciate it. And uh, we will be back again next week. And don't forget to follow our Instagram. Uh, yeah. Pets, killers, and cocktails. Thanks. Hi everyone, Vanessa here. I just wanted to tell you a little bit about the sources that I used for this week's episode. I, of course, used Murderpedia to find out about Lonnie Franklin Jr. And then I watched this documentary hosted by Nick Broomfield. It's called Tales of the Grim Sleeper. It's a little bit over two hours long, but it's really cool because he goes around the neighborhood. He interviews people that live there and knew Lonnie and everything like that. I also used laced.com and I used criminalmindsfandom.com. So those were all my sources. If you have any more questions, let me know. Thanks. Bye. Hey guys, Jen here with my sources. I 
got most of my information from Seductive Poison, a Jonestown survivor story of life and death inside the People's Temple by Deborah Layton. I also got a bunch of information from Biography and Facts, uh, Britannica.com, Jim Jones, and a bunch of articles from the New York Times. So that is it, and we will see you next week. Thanks. Bye.